Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 through 75, verses 57 to 62. And they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him afar off unto the high priest's palace, and went in, and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priest and the elders, and all the council, sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses, and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God, and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which seeth witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace. Burkett notes, Judas, having made good on his promise to the high priest, and delivered Jesus a prisoner into their hands, these wolves of the evening no sooner seize the Lamb of God, but they thirst and long to suck his innocent blood. Yet, lest it look like a downright murder, they will allow him a mock trial, by abusing the law and perverting it to injustice and bloodshed. Accordingly, they industriously suborn false witnesses to take away his life, not sticking at the grossest perjury so they might destroy him. The chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witnesses against Jesus to put him to death. Abominable wickedness. Innocency itself cannot protect from slander and false accusation. No man is so innocent or good whom false witness may not condemn. To observe farther, our Lord's meekness and patience, his submissive silence under all these wicked suggestions and false accusations. Jesus held his peace. Verse 63. Guilt is clamorous and impatient. Innocence is silent and careless of misreports. Learn hence that to bear the reviling contradictions and false accusations of men with a silent and submissive spirit is an excellent and Christ-like temper. Our Lord stood before his unjust judges and false accusers as a sheep before his shearer, dumb and not opening his mouth. Although a trial for his life was managed most maliciously and illegally against him, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Oh, let the same humble mind be in us, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verses 63 through 68. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tellest whether thou be the Christ the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said. Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power, and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. Then did they spit in his face and buffet him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesize unto us, thou Christ, who was it that smote thee? Burkett notes, We observe even now that our Lord was silent and did make no reply to the false witnesses that evidenced against him at his trial, because being so manifestly contradictory, they did fall to the ground of themselves. But now when the question was solemnly put by the high priest, Art thou the Christ? He said, I am. Thence learn that although we are not obliged to answer every caviling and ensnaring question, 
yet we are bound faithfully to own and freely to confess the truth when we are solemnly called thereunto. Christ, who in the former verses was silent, and as a deaf man heard not, now witnesses a good confession, teaching us both by his example and command to confess and own both him and his truth when lawfully required, when our silence would be a denying of the truth, a dishonor to God, and a scandal to our brethren. Christ knew that his answer would cost him his life, and yet he dares not but give it. Art thou the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. Yea, farther observe, that as Christ answered directly and plainly at his trial, so did he not refuse to answer upon oath. I adjure thee by the living God, says the judge of the court, that thou tell us whether thou art the Christ. That is, I require thee to answer the question upon oath, for adjuring a person, or requiring to answer upon oath, was the manner of swearing among the Jews. Now to this adjuration our Savior answered plainly and directly, I am. Mark 14.61 Hence learn that swearing before a magistrate upon a just and great occasion is lawful. If Christ in the fifth of St. Matthew forbid all oaths, then here his practice was contradictory to his own doctrine. But it is evident that Christ answered the magistrate upon oath, and so may we. Observe lastly the sentence of condemnation which the council passed upon him for owning himself to be the Son of God. He has spoken blasphemy, and is worthy to die. Hereupon the unruly rabble affront him with the vilest abuses and most horrid indignities. They spit in his face. They blindfold him. They smote him with their fists and palms of their hands. And in the way of contempt and mockery, they bid him divine or prophesize who it was that smote him. Learn hence that there is no degree of contempt, no mark of shame, no kind of suffering which we ought to decline or stick at for Christ's sake, who hid not his face from shame and spitting upon our account. O oh, monstrous impiety, how do they spit on that awful lovely face? How do they revile and blaspheme his noble office of a prophet of the Most High God? Prophesize, they say, in a mocking derision. Who was it that smote thee? To such acts of inhumanity did the barbarous rage of the bloody Jews carried them. Verses 69 through 75. Now Peter sat without in the palace, and a damsel came unto him, saying, Thou also was with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest. And when he was gone out into the porch, another maid saw him, and said unto them that were there, This fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And after a while came unto him they that stood by, and said to Peter, Surely thou also art one of them, for thy speech betrayeth thee. Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man, and immediately the cock crew. And Peter remembered the words of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. Burkett notes, this last paragraph of the chapter gives us an account of the fall and rising of Peter, of his sin in denying Christ, and of his recovery by a speedy and severe repentance. Both must be considered distinctly. First, as touching his sin and fall, there are four particulars observable, namely, the sin itself, the occasion of that sin, the reiteration and repetition of it, and the aggravating circumstances attending it. Observe 1. 
the sin itself, the denial of Christ. I know not the man, a manifest untruth. Next, he adds an oath to confirm that untruth. He swore that he knew not the man. And last of all, he wished a hard curse and imprecation upon himself. That is, he wished himself excommunicated and cast out of the church. Some say he wished himself eternally separated from the presence of God, say others. He wished, in effect, that the devil might take him if he were acquainted with Jesus. The inordinate love of life and slavish fear of suffering and death may draw the best of men to commit the worst of sins. Observe, too, the occasions of this sin, and they were three. His following Christ afar off, his being in bad company amongst Christ's enemies, and his presumptuous confidence of his own strength and standing. One, his following of Christ afar off. To follow Christ is the work of faith and fruit of love, but to follow him afar off was the effect of fear and frailty. Woe unto us when a temptation comes if we be far off from Christ's presence and assistance. Two, his being in wicked company among Christ's enemies. O Peter, thou had better have been a cold by thyself alone than sitting by a fire encompassed with the blasphemies of the wicked, where thy conscience, though not seared, was yet made hard. The way to escape prevailing temptations to sin is to shun such places and to avoid such companions as in all probability will invite and draw us into sin. Three, confidence of his own strength and standing was another occasion of Peter's falling. Pride and presumptuous confidence have been ever the forerunner and occasion of a fall. O Lord, To presume upon ourselves is the ready way to provoke thee to leave us to ourselves. If ever we stand in the day of trial, it's the fear of falling must enable us to stand. Not only they who go forth in the strength of nature, but also they who go forth in the strength of inherent grace, may quickly fall from their own steadfastness. Observe 3. The reiteration and repetition of a sin. He denies him a first, a second, and a third time. He denies him first with a lie, then with an oath, and after all, with an anathemata and a curse. Oh, how dangerous it is not to resist the first beginnings of sin. If we yield to one temptation, Satan will assault us with more and stronger. Peter proceeded from a bare denial, first to perjury, then to cursing and imprecation. Observe 4 the aggravating circumstances attending the sin of Peter, and they are these. 1. The character of the person falling. A disciple, an apostle, a chief apostle, a special favorite, who with James and John had the special honor to be with Christ upon Mount Tabor. Peter, who had preached and prophesied in Christ's name, cast out devils, and wrought miracles by Christ's power, yet he denies him. 2. Consider the person whom he denies, his master, his savior and redeemer. He that had washed Peter's feet but a little before, that eat the Passover with Peter, and gave the sacrament to Peter. Yet this kind of condescending savior was denied by Peter. 3. Consider before whom he denies him, in the company and presence of the chief priests, scribes and elders, and their servants, who rejoiced at it and were hardened by it that one disciple should sell him for money, and another disciple deny him through fear. 4. Consider the time when he denied him. Verily, it was but a few hours after he had received the sacrament of the Lord's Supper from Christ's own hand. 
How unreasonable, then, is their objection against coming to the Lord's table, because some that go to it dishonor Christ as soon as they come from it. Such examples must not discourage us from coming to the ordinance, but excite and increase our watchfulness after we have been there, to take heed that the future conduct of our lives be suited to the solemnity of a sacramental table. 5. Consider the smallness of his temptation to deny Christ. A damsel only put the question to him. Art thou not one of his disciples? If a band of armed soldiers had appeared to him and affrighted him, had he been terrified by the high priest's threatening, bound and led away to judgment, sentenced to ignominious, painful death, some excuse might have been made for him. But to disown his relation to Christ at the question of a maidservant that kept the door only, the smallness of the temptation was an aggravation of the crime. Ah, Peter, how unlike thyself art thou at this time, not a rock, but a reed, a pillar blown down by a woman's breath. O frail humanity, whose strength is weakness and infirmity. Observe here, that in most of the saints' falls recorded in Scripture, either the first enticer or the accidental occasions were women. Thus in Adam, Lot's, Samson, David's, Solomon's, and Peter's. A weak creature may be a strong tempter. Nothing is too impotent or useless for the devil's service. It was a great aggravation of Peter's sin that the voice of a maid, a doorkeeper only, should be stronger to overcome him than his faith in Jesus to sustain him. But what shall we say? Small things are sufficient to cast us down if God doth not hold us up. We sink under any burden if he sustain us not and yield to every temptation if he leaves us to ourselves. A damsel shall then make a disciple shrink, and a doorkeeper is enough to drive an apostle before her. And immediately the cock crew, and Peter remembered the words of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. Here we have an account of St. Peter's rising and recovery after a shameful fall, by a new renewed act and exercise of repentance where observe the suddenness of his repentance, the means of his repentance, and the manner of it. Observe one, the suddenness of his repentance. Although his sin was great, yet his repentance was speedy and without delay. From whence note that sin committed by the surprisal of a sudden temptation are much sooner repented of than where the sin is presumptuous and deliberate. David's sin of murder and adultery were presumptuous and deliberate sins. He continued a long time in them, and lived almost a twelve-month without any solemn repentance of them. St. Peter's sin was hasty and sudden, under a violent passion of fear, contrary to his settled purpose and resolution of constancy. And he takes the warning of the second crowing of the cock, and goes forth to express his repentance. Observe, too, the means of his repentance, which was twofold. Less principle, the crowing of the cock. More principle, Christ looking upon Peter, and Peter's remembering the words of Christ. One, the less principal means of Peter's repentance was the crowing of the cock. As the voice of the maid occasioned him to sin, so the voice of the cock occasioned him to repent. That God, who can work without means, doth sometimes work by weak and contemptible means, and when he pleases, can open the mouth of a bird or a beast for the conversion of a man. But why should our Savior choose the crowing of a cock as a means to bring St. Peter to repentance? There is ever some mystery in Christ's instruments. The cock was a preacher 
to call Peter to repentance, there being something of an emblem between the cock and a preacher. A true minister must have the wings of a cock to rouse up himself from security and to awaken others to a sense of their duty. He must have the watchfulness of a cock to be ever ready to discover and forewarn danger. He must have the voice of a cock to cry aloud and to tell Israel of their sins and terrify the roaring lion and make him tremble. In a word, he must observe the hour of the cock to crow at all seasons of the night, to preach in all seasons and out of seasons the glad tidings of salvation. But two, the more principal means of St. Peter's recovery was, one, Christ's looking upon Peter. Christ first looks upon Peter with an eye of mercy, grace, and pity, before Peter looks upon his sin in order to repentance. Here take notice of the greatness of Christ's grace, of his wonderful love and mercy to the poor disciple. When our Savior was upon his trial for his life, a time when our thoughts are wholly taken up about ourselves, even then did Christ find leisure to think upon Peter, remember to turn about and give him a pitiful but piercing look, a look that melted his heart and dissolved it into tears. We never begin to lament for sin till we are first lamented by our Savior. Jesus looked upon Peter, that is, the first, more principal means of Peter's repentance. The second is Peter's remembering the words of Christ. Before the cock crows twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. This remembrance of Christ's words was an applicative and feeling remembrance of them. He remembered the prediction of Christ and applies it sensibly to himself, teaching us that the efficiency of Christ's word in order to the bringing of a soul into repentance depends not upon the historical remembrance of it, but upon the close application of it to every man's conscience. A sanctified remembrance of Christ's words and our own sins is excellent preparative to repentance. Observe lastly the manner of Peter's repentance. It was secret. He went out. It was sincere. He wept bitterly. It was lasting and abiding all the days of his life and attended with an extraordinary zeal and forwardness for the service of Christ to the end of his life. 1. It was secret. He went out. He sought a place of retirement where he might mourn in secret. He cannot well be thought to disassemble his grief, who chooses no other witness but the omnipresent God. Solitariness is most agreeable to an afflicted spirit, and as St. Peter's sorrow causes him to go forth, so might also his shame. Christ looked upon Peter, but how ashamed must Peter be to look upon Christ, considering that he so lately denied to ever having seen him. 2. His repentance was sincere. He wept bitterly. His grief was extraordinary, and his tears abundant. There is ever a weeping that follows sin. Sin must cost the soul sorrow, either here or in hell. We must mourn a while or lament forever. Doubtless, with Peter's tears, there was joined hearty confession of a sin to God and smart reflections upon himself after this manner. Lord, what have I done? I that did once acknowledge my master to be Christ, the son of the living God, have since denied him with oaths, curses, and imprecations. I that promised to lay my life down for his sake have yet disowned and denied him at the voice of a damsel. Oh, what unfaithfulness, what weakness, what wretchedness! Oh, that my head were water and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep all my days for the fault of this one night. 
Blessed indeed are the tears of the converted revolter, and happy is the very misery of a mournful offender. 3. This holy man's repentance was lasting and abiding. He had a lively sense and remembrance of the sin upon his soul all his life. Ecclesiastical history reports that ever after, when St. Peter heard the crowing of a cock, he fell upon his knees and mourned. Others say that he was wont to rise at midnight and spend the time in penitent devotion between cock crowing and daylight. And the papists, who loved to turn everything into superstition, began that practice of setting a cock upon the top of towers and steeples and chimneys to put the people in mind of this sin of Peter and his repentance by that signal. Lastly, St. Peter's repentance was attended with an extraordinary zeal and forwardness for the service of Christ to the end of his life. He had an earnest love towards Christ. Thou that knowest all things, knowest that I love thee. And as an evidence of it, he fed Christ's sheep. For in the Acts of the Apostles, we read of his extraordinary diligence to spread the gospel, and his travels, in order thereunto, are counted to be 950 miles. And the wisdom of God thought it fit that this apostle should preach the gospel to the Jews, as St. Paul did to the Gentiles. That as he had joined with the Jews in denying and disowning Christ, so he should endeavor to persuade them to join with him in repentance, as he had joined with them in their sin. His sin was in some respects like theirs, therefore he is sent to preach the gospel to them, and his diligence therein is an undoubted proof and evidence of his repentance. Have any of us fallen with Peter, though not with a formal abjuring, but yet by a practical denying of him? Let us go forth and weep with him. Let us be more vigilant and watchful over ourselves for the time to come. Let us express more extraordinary love and zeal for Christ, more diligence in his service, and more concernedness for his honor and glory. This would be a happy improvement of this example. The Lord grant it may have that blessed effect. Amen. Amen.